0: Welcome to The Tidal Year, a series about the joy of swimming. With the help of some special guests, we'll discover the human stories behind why we swim. Together, we'll share tales from the places that helped us fall in love with swimming. From lidos to lakes, by leisure centres in the ocean, I can't wait to dive into these magical places. I'm your host, writer and wild swimmer, Freya Bromley. And every week, I'll be chatting to a new explorer, swimmer, author, or campaigner about what water means to them. Before we dive into this episode, I'd like to thank today's sponsor, TryHard. I love being in the water, but I don't love what pool chemicals like chlorine do for my skin and hair. TryHard develop water sports specialized skin and hair solutions that eliminate those negative effects of pool chemicals and ocean salts. I'm thrilled to share with all listeners of the Tidal year a very exclusive 15% off when you use code TIDAL at tryhard.co. This week, my guest is Simon Griffiths, founder of Outdoor Swimmer, which is the only magazine dedicated to open water swimming in all its forms. Since 2011, he's been providing inspiration for people to live healthier and happier lives through swimming. It's been a delight to see the meteoric rise of swimming's popularity. And no one has witnessed that more than Simon. He's passionate about our need to share really inspiring swimming stories, whether that's a triathlon achievement or even a first dip in that cold water. We spoke over the phone about his earliest memories swimming, experience as an open water National Masters champion, and of course, his journey to founding the magazine. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll speak to you again at the end of the episode. Enjoy! Good morning. Thank you for joining me, Simon, especially on such a gloriously sunny day. We're both inside virtually recording this, but I hope our listeners are on their way to a swim or maybe they're just sat by the water after a dip. Now, when the weather is this gorgeous, it really reminds me personally of going to Dartmoor to see my grandma and swimming at Postbridge on the Dart River, which is just a beautiful place to swim. I'd love to know some places that you remember from your childhood and some of your early memories of swimming.
1: Yeah. Morning, Freya. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me onto your podcast today. Yeah. I mean, swimming is something I've always done. I guess I'm lucky that my parents were very keen that I would swim. As a youngster, I remember my mum taking me to the pool when I was tiny. I remember learning to swim. And then I remember growing up, she'd take us, she'd bundle all the kids into the, the back of our Ford Granada. We had one of those Ford Granada estates. So it'd be kids, dogs, friends, all bundled into the back of the car. And we'd go to a we just go to a lake in the in the Cotswolds and um, just spend the day there, picnicking, swimming, just messing around it on or near the water. And then holidays, we we often used to go to Cornwall as kids. I remember my mum had a one of those really old fashioned wooden surfboards. Wow! That he used to play on in the waves when I was a kid. I don't know the names of the beaches anymore, but it was it was definitely Cornwall.
0: Oh, beautiful! And Cotswolds as well. What beautiful place to go swimming. Yeah. Is that somewhere that you've returned to? What's that like to go back there after all that time? Well, it's interesting because there's a load of lakes
1: there now. There's a Cotswold Water Park. I don't think that was a a thing when I was growing up there. Uh, So now I I don't know. There's hundreds of lakes there now. So I don't even know which one we used to go to. But there are now a number of them that are sort of runners swimming venues. So I have been back, and but you have to pay to swim now. I did ask my mum, I did ask my mum the other day, did we used to pay to go swimming? And I said, no, we just used to go. (laughs) So, but now it's a bit more formal. And that, you know, there's pros and cons to that. Obviously, you know, that you pay, obviously giving up money is not always what you want to do. But on the other hand, you've got lifeguards, you know, someone's tested the water quality, you know, that there's no one going to run you over in a boat or anything like that. So there's pros and cons.
0: But maybe not as many wooden surfboards there anymore. No. (laughs) (laughs) So you didn't actually get into surfing as much, or maybe you can correct me, you did, but you did become an enthusiastic outdoor swimmer. Tell me about getting into that.
1: There wasn't any kind of, I mean, I, you know, as I said, as kids, we used to go to the beach, we used to go to the lake in the Cotswolds. When I was in my 20s, I lived and worked in the Gambia and the only place to swim was the sea or the river. So I swam in both of those places uh, when I came back, I started doing triathlon. And so I was doing open water racing as part of triathlon. But at the time in, in this country, open water swimming as a as a sort of competitive, organized thing didn't really exist apart from there were some long distance swimming races organized by the British Long Distance Swimming Association, but you know, there wasn't the hundreds of events that we have now. So, you know, every weekend in the summer there might be four or five events going on now. And there, there wasn't anything like that before but there was a lot of triathlon going on. So I was always drawn to the triathlons that had the open water swimming events that swim rather than the pool-based ones because I just liked that whole competitive bit, I guess. I mean, I was younger then. You know, you get in the mass start and it's a a proper head-to-head race, which in pool racing, you don't get that. You've got a lane to yourself and it's just you. There are people racing in the pool, but it's not such a tactical thing as in a open water swim. So I, I really enjoyed that kind of competitive mass participation part of, of swimming and then swimming events, some of the triathlon organizers started putting on standalone swimming events, so I started doing those and then eventually I, I stopped doing triathlon, but I carried on just doing the swimming.
0: Wow, so you must have seen a real rise in popularity of outdoor swimming events going from initially being into triathlons and then abandoning the the running and the cycling to to get fully into that. So having a wetsuit must have been a big game changer for you then and having the equipment to really lean into those outdoor swimming events.
1: Yeah, the whole wetsuit thing is a obviously it's a big topic. But I remember I used to do a bit of kayaking when I was at school, so I had um, a wetsuit for that. But it was a long john with you know it was just loose around my body. And I tried to do my first triathlon in that, and it filled up with all the water went down the side under my armpits, and it just kind of ballooned around my middle. And it was like trying to swim with a parachute or something. It was (laughs) it was terrible. You know, it neither kept me warm nor did it help me swim faster. So it was a it was just an all round disaster. But I guess you know that's one of those things you have to go through and learn, isn't it? So actually getting into a proper swimming wetsuit, the first time I did that, that was quite interesting because I didn't realize how much faster they make you swim as well. So um it's not only the the comfort of being a bit warmer, but it's the the speed factor as well, I think, is you get from the wetsuits.
0: You always got to consider that speed factor. So it sounds like... Well, I'm really racing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It sounds like you're really active. And also you mentioned that you're quite competitive but is swimming something that you're also able to do for fun or do you find it hard to not be keeping an eye on your lap time or your stroke?
1: No, no, no. It's definitely something that um, I could, you know, and I guess as I've got older, the fun side has grown and the competitive side has decreased. I mean, especially, you know, since lockdown, there weren't any events last year anyway. Mm. I've got an event coming up in a couple of weeks time. and I'm really looking forward to doing one again, but um, I've definitely increased the amount of swimming for leisure I do and decrease the amount of training and swimming for fitness that i do so all the way through lockdown depending on how many people were allowed to meet with and so on so staying within the rules and social distancing and all that but i used to meet with people for swims in the river and it became a real you know because there's so much restriction on what we could do and who you could meet and but you could meet with people outside and exercise together so it became almost like a it was a real sort of relief from the whole lockdown thing so you know, there's no competing at all. It was just, you know, you'd meet, and then I'd quite often bring a flask. Or when the cafes reopened, we'd just go and have a coffee after swimming. And you know, we'd swim in the river for a bit. We'd stop and look. There's a kingfisher that lives in the river, so we'd sometimes see the kingfisher. Look out for the different birds along the river. It's just really nice to uh, sort of a escapism from that whole lockdown pressure that we were under last year.
0: Such a lifeline for so many of us, and having that connection with nature while most of us were, were trapped inside. I think that Kingfisher sounds beautiful. So the Thames is near where you swim. Is that where you are? So you do a lot of river swimming more now, even than pools. Mostly in the river, I guess.
1: Now pools have reopened again. I'll I probably go two or three times a week to the pool and then three times, three or four times a week in the river.
0: And was this your first time trying cold swimming when lockdown happened throughout winter as well? It's the first time I've consistently done
1: it. It's ran through the winter. So I have you know, I've been talked into doing some some of those cold water events before where, you know, quick plunge, quick wits across the pool at uh, Tutinbeck in the middle of winter. I did one in Windermere a few years ago as well. But this this was the first time I've consistently swum all the way through the winter. So that was uh, quite an experience as well.
0: I saw you did every day for 30 days in November. That's very impressive. Yeah, I just, I
1: think we went into another, I can't remember exactly when the lockdown we went, I think we went into another lockdown in November and I I think just as we started, I think it was two days in. I said, you know what, I'm gonna do this time, I'm gonna swim in the river every day. Just I think I want something to take your mind off everything else that's going and give yourself a challenge that some days I was only in for three or four minutes, but it was like, okay, I've done I've done something for me, you know, I've done something for my health, I've done something for my mental well-being, done something that's difficult because it is difficult because you have to get up in the morning and strip off, get into a and it just gives you something to uh you know, it's a little sense of achievement that you can carry with you through the day.
0: Definitely. And the more, you know, if you have one day that you take off, it then becomes harder to do it again the next day. So really sticking to your own achievements and your own discipline of saying that you're going to get in, Mm. I think can be really important. What top tips have you learned about cold water swimming that you might be able to share?
1: Oh, there's lots. (laughs) I don't know where to start. So I think probably most importantly is, especially if you're starting out, always swim with other people just because swimming is, there's a, always a risk in swimming. When you swim in cold water, that risk is obviously increased because of the cold. It's not just the cold in the water. There's the risk of cold shock when you get in, but also warming up afterwards. And also, and especially in the river, the conditions can be more dangerous in the winter as well. So always swimming with somebody else, I think is, is really, really important. And then I think it's really important to understand the process that your body goes through when you're going into cold water, the whole cold water shock thing. It can be really dangerous if you don't know it's happening or if you don't know what is happening and you don't know why it's happening. But once you understand it, you can be prepared for it. And so then you can manage it. And it's, you know, like many risks, if you don't understand them, they're dangerous. But if you understand them, you can manage them and it's not a problem. So understanding what cold water shock is, how it affects your body and how to deal with it. And also then, giving yourself time, because it only takes sort of five or six immersions into cold water for that cold water shock response to to decrease. Giving yourself and allowing yourself that time, those exposures to get used to cold water swimming. And I think even, you know, I'm going to do, I don't know, 10 cold water dips before I make a decision on whether I like this or not. Because for many years, I didn't do it because I'd, I'd done these few winter swim events where I hadn't done any training. I hadn't prepared for it. I just got in the cold water and it really put me off. Whereas when I spent the time getting used to it and acclimatizing, yeah, I discovered the the sort of the fun side of it and that you can actually get into cold water and it's not, well, I thought it would be really horrible, but it's not. It's actually quite fun in a, in a strange sort of way.
0: That's really great advice to stick with it and really try it a few times, especially, um, I always suggest cold showers as well, even before you get into a river or a lake or a pool, building up that tolerance can be so important. And I think for a lot of us, it was the first time that we really all leaned into cold water swimming over COVID. And I think it really helped us all realise just how much swimming helps us cope with life in general. Was that the same for you? Did it really confirm how reliant you've become on swimming?
1: Yeah, I think I've always been reliant on swimming in one form or another. Maybe reliant is a it's a bit too strong a word, but it's certainly something that's, that's very important. You know, it keeps me fit. It's uh, my social network. Is, a lot of that is built through swimming. And I was even thinking about, you know, all the adventures that I've had because of swimming. You know, I've gone to events in different countries. And it also, it can give you purpose in things if you think, okay, we'll get, where are we going? Maybe we're going on holiday somewhere. Immediately, I start looking at the map and thinking, oh, maybe there's some places to swim there or we could on the way back or we could stop for a swim here. So it gives you kind of purpose as well that you can build into all sorts of other things. Some people might roll their eyes, oh, you just want to go for a, a swim. But actually, it's, it's more than the swim because often you go to places that are a bit off the beaten track and you have to explore. and you... So it builds in a whole adventure into, into anything you do when you, when you want to add in a swim.
0: Adventure and also such a great experience of being able to meet people often when you're swimming, especially at odd times of year, you meet people that maybe they go to that spot every day or that they have a story about growing up there or how it's changed over time. I think that's definitely true that it does give you purpose when you travel. And also for me, it's taken me to some places that I probably wouldn't have gone to otherwise, unless I'd been specifically I'd heard that it was such a great place to swim. But you've done challenges as well that you've travelled for. Can you tell me about some of those? I was um, reading about your challenge in Windermere. That sounded amazing.
1: Windermere is is obviously England's longest lake, so it's quite a famous, well known swim. And the British Long Distance Swimming Association have for years and years run a championship event there. It's a, I think it's ten and a half mile swim. So I decided to do that one year, and that was going to be my first long distance swim. I mean, there's a there's a whole story around that because I. Although I've embraced cold water swimming in the winter, I I still struggle with staying in colder water for a long period of time, and I've never been able to really adapt to that. I've practiced and I train, and I just think some people are more tolerant of cold water than others. So actually, I did get hypothermia on that swim. I finished it, but I wasn't in a very good state afterwards. And then I did it again a few years later with a wetsuit, which is much, much easier. And in a way... I think it was more enjoyable because I didn't have to worry about getting hypothermia. And, uh, you know, I could just focus on the swim and the surroundings and, and stuff. So I'm always really in awe of people who can do these long distance swims without their wetsuits because I just, I just can't do it. You know, I can swim quite fast. I can swim quite long distances, but I just can't keep going in the cold. I just get, well, I've ended up in the medical tent a few times with the, <laughs> with the cold. So I have, to, I have to be really careful and, you know, and really know what my limits are on that. And in many ways, I prefer swimming without a wetsuit because I love the feel of the water on my skin, the feel of cold water on my skin. Uh, but for these really these longer swims, so Windermere, the second time I did it, I wore a wetsuit, and that was that was a you know it made a big difference. And I did a long swim in Sweden, 2019. I've lost track a bit because we've had this whole COVID year messed everything up. And that was 21 kilometers, and that was beautiful. And I did that one with a with a wetsuit as well, because I probably wouldn't have be been able to do it otherwise, but uh That was a whole adventure. We drove to Sweden from London to to, to do this event. So we made a whole kind of big road trip out of it. Then we added in lots of, well, we were driving through Sweden. I don't know if you've ever been, but there's, you can just be driving along a road and there's a, a lake opens up in front of you and there's a signpost that says swimming spot. So we were just stopping and swimming in all these lakes. And, you know, I'd love to have that in this country that, you know, you get to rivers, you get to lakes, there's a signpost that says, Here's a good place to swim, and someone's cleared away some of the reeds so you can get in easily. And one of the places we went to, someone was even had even dangled left a thermometer dangling in the water so you could check the water temperature before you swam.
0: Oh, lovely! That culture of just encouraging people to jump in and get in without anything else other than the good intention of a swim is is really great. Are there any other places that you've been that it's felt like it's been much more of a part of a culture? Germany,
1: there's the Mecklenburgische Seenplatte, which is north of Berlin. I don't know if you've ever been there, but there's a, I don't know how many lakes, thousands of lakes they've got. And we once did a boat trip there. You can hire a boat and the lakes are all connected by, well, not all of them, but a lot of the lakes are connected by canals. So you can motor from in a boat between the lakes. And then we were just finding a nice spot, spend the night, moor up. The water was really warm. I don't know, 20 plus, we didn't measure it, but it was, it was warm. Moor up for the night. And then go and swim wherever we wherever we were. But then also in that area, when we hired a car as well, when we'd finished with the boat trip and we'd explored a bit more by car. And again, on you'd go to a a village and there'd be a sign in in the village of the village and it would show all the swim spots on the map. You know, and there'd be picnic benches there, and families would come with the kids. And it was just a, a normal thing to do. It was like, you've got all these beautiful lakes, why not use them? And I think we've got I live next to the Thames, we've got beautiful rivers, we've got beautiful lakes, we've got reservoirs that are probably mostly in you know, they could be made safe to swim in and we don't use it as much as we should.
0: Yeah, it's a real shame. I know that's something you've written about recently is pollution in the Thames. Maybe you can tell me more about that.
1: Yeah, so pollution is it's always a worry when you swim, isn't it? Because we know we don't know what goes into the water when. We know that the water companies within their license Are permitted to discharge sewage into the river at certain times. Under extreme circumstances, we don't know all the times that that happens because they haven't got live monitoring on on all of their outfalls into the river. We also know it's not such a problem in urban areas, but in rural areas that uh, you can get runoff from farms and stuff. You know, when heavy rain, you can get runoff, and that might be carrying fertilizer and or cow manure or whatever into the river as well. So, you know, we know that rivers aren't as clean as they should be. And it's a question that comes up all the time. You know, people see me swimming and they say, should you swim in there? It's not, you know, we know it's not clean. It's been in the news a lot. The Guardian did a really big expose on all of the all of the spills of sewage that go into the river. You know that every time you swim, you are taking a risk. So it's trying to gauge what that risk is. And again, we we don't really have numbers. So it's only judged on my experience. So I swim in the river a lot and I been ill in the last 10 years maybe two or three times i've had a a kind of minor stomach bug so i know that sometimes you you get ill but i've been swimming hundreds and hundreds of times and i've got ill a couple of times so and it's never you know it's never been anything serious it's just been a bit unpleasant so it's not very nice and it should be better but it's not so bad that i think it should stop us from swimming and and also i think the more people that swim or demand to swim so you know if people should be saying "Look, i I really want to swim and i want to know that it's safe to swim," and. the more we demand that, the more the politicians and the environment agency and the water companies will have to listen to, to what people are saying. And it will cost money. You know, there will need to be investment to improve sewage treatment works, to improve the outfalls. Um, but you know, at the moment, you, you've, I've seen how many people are going in the river now. There's families taking their kids in. There's so many people in the river. I think it's a much better message to say people are using the river. You need to keep it clean rather than the, the river is dirty, so you shouldn't use it you know, I think that that pressure has to come from people using the river and politicians saying, oh, we need to, this is a public health issue. People are going to get ill if we don't clean up the rivers.
0: Definitely. And what a great vision as well to have that idea of hoping that even more people can try swimming and enjoy it together, especially as part of a community. And community is probably actually what you've ended up Working on or being involved with the swimming the most as the founder of Outdoor Swimmer magazine. And I know that initially you founded it as H2 Open, which is a great name. So tell me about the idea behind it.
1: Yeah, so this was two thousand and ten. Two thousand eleven was the first issue. So two thousand and ten, late two thousand and ten, I was I was working towards it. I was still doing triathlon back then. I was doing some freelance writing for Triathletes World, which doesn't exist in print anymore. And I was mostly writing about swimming. And it was around that time. So 2008 was the first open water swimming in the Olympics, the first marathon Olympic swim where Carrie Ann Payne and Cassie Patton got uh, bronze and silver. And uh, David, his name is currently escaping, which is quite embarrassing. We have to fill this in afterwards, got a silver in the the men's. So Britain took home three medals from that first ever Olympic marathon swim. The Outdoor Swimming Society had been going, I think, for four or five years by then and they were they were building some momentum and the first open water pure open water swimming events were happening you know they've been going a few years i guess that sometimes triathlon organizers had decided oh we'll just run a swimming event alongside and some people were just starting to put put them on so there have been some going for a few years but it was it was suddenly sort of taking off so i thought we talked about open water swimming because in triathlon that's what you call it open water swimming but really it is outdoor swimming but it's in triathlon, they call it open water, and it's more about the racing side. So initially, that was my thinking that you know there's people that are going to want to race; they're going to want to know about tactics, about kit, about training. Because I was working in that triathlon world, it was a bit like, okay, we need a, a specialist one for for swimming. But what very quickly became apparent was that our readers were not were not like triathletes. There was always that proportion that want to race and do events. But there was a, a growing, and it's become the dominant part of our audience, of, of people that are just that are swimming because they, they just love it. They recognize that they get you know, great mental health benefits, they feel better, there's a whole social world for them. All those things that we've, we've talked about already, and, and those were our readers. So, so I was writing about, you know, publishing stuff about racing and training but that's not what people were doing <laughs> that was just a small part of what they were doing and so it was it was really amazing to you know as part of the develop my personal development as a swimmer and as a publication that growing sense of all the different things you could do in swimming so it's, you know it's not just putting on a wetsuit and doing a race there were the long distance challenges the, the swimming holidays that, that that was a new industry that was just growing there's all the wild swimming i don't think we called it wild swimming when i was a kid my mum just took us swimming in the lake in the Cotswolds but it was sort of growing as a as a movement and so there was all these different parts of it i mean that was great for us because it it just meant that it took us from this sort of narrow focus on racing to this whole sort of wide scope of of things that we could explore and and write about and inspire people with really
0: Yeah, inspiration is such a huge part of it. And also reminding people that however they want to swim is great. There's no such thing as a good swimmer or a bad swimmer. And I think people do have that misconception that they have to have their swimming hat and their goggles on and go and do lengths. But you can go, like you say, for it to be part of your community and have a bit of cake afterwards, or you can go and do ice water swimming and get in for five minutes. I think that's really great to have a place where people can come and discover all of that and all of those stories.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's really what we want to do is, is show that whatever type of swimming you like to do, this is how you can do it. And these are things you can explore with it. And these are people you
0: might meet when you're doing it. Definitely. And so you had this idea, you had this really strong vision of what you wanted to do, and then it came to actually doing it. And I've learned this a bit with podcasting recently and having to learn about mics and editing. And at times it can be very intimidating when I realize I don't. Really have much of a clue of what I'm doing, but it must have been that times a hundred for founding a magazine. Where did you even begin?
1: Uh, Google um, <laughs> how to publish a magazine.
0: Uh, you know, it's not like you know, it's not like
1: starting a high tech business, I guess. But there are a number of bits you have to put together. You know, when you start something, you don't know how you're going to do it, and it's a bit like you know, if you start a, I don't know, if you start a new activity, if you start swimming, you don't know where it's going to take you. If you start. A magazine you don't know how you're going to do it but you know other people publish magazines so you know it can be done and then you just start asking people i started phoning printers and saying i want to print x number of copies of a magazine how can i do that and i got four or five quotes in for that i wanted to figure out how to manage a database of subscribers we actually outsourced that to a different company because i didn't want to have that responsibility for all the data and all the data security so there's quite a lot you can buy services in from providers so, the printing paper I don't go to Sweden and chop down the trees and make the paper, and you know you get that and you know su- subscription management services you can you can buy that as a service and then I don't know anything about design, so I always have to work with a, a designer and I don't know everything about swimming either, so I, so I had to get other people to to write stuff. You put it all together on and, and you've got a magazine.
0: It must have been an amazing journey as well to reminisce about that idea when you were googling how to start a magazine and then to where you are now and you know you mentioned the design but it's a beautiful magazine rich with stories and also great content and you mentioned that you work with a lot of other people has there been anybody a story or maybe even a cover star that really has stayed with you?
1: Yeah, I think working with people. I mean, obviously, we've as the magazine has grown. You know, to start with, you, you try and do a, as much as you can yourself. But now we have a, a team, so I'm really lucky to have some absolutely great people working on the on the magazine. So Jonathan, our editor, he also does a lot of the design himself. And you know, I think we've got Linford Christie on the cover this time, which I, I, it's just amazing. That he was um, that he was willing to do that as um, sort of posed for for pictures while standing in a lake, and then we've had wim hoff on the cover which was really great and then we had sarah thomas who swam the channel four times so you know sometimes we try to do a mixture sometimes we just try to capture an an everyday swimmer because not everybody is a celebrity but everybody can swim and, and we want to show that as well so we don't very often use posed model pictures we always have a swimmer of some kind so it's always someone who swims they might be a celebrity swimmer like linford christie or sarah thomas but they're still a swimmer but sometimes we, we just put a regular unknown swimmer on the cover because they're doing something that's, that's great or they're just
0: having fun. I think that's so important as well to show people all kinds of swimmers and also really to establish different role models as well, because swimming has become increasingly popular. And because of that, there's a need for it to be more inclusive and also for it to be more accessible to more people.
1: Yeah, no, that's really important to us. And it's quite difficult because a lot of the photos we get sent in reflect the demographic of the majority of people who are swimming at the moment. So we do look out for pictures showing people from different ethnic groups, for example, people across a wide age span. We really want to show that anyone can swim. It's important that everybody sees that because there are still some stereotypes and there are still some sort of strange notions out there that we can help to dispel i mean there's the the whole i remember being told this as a kid that blacks can't swim because they've got heavier bones you know if you're told something like that as a kid it just you just think well that must be true but of course it's not true but if you're told that as a kid and then nobody corrects you for years and years you might just go on thinking that so it's really you know sometimes it, we've done a little bit of work with the black swimming association for example And that was also another reason to have Linford Christie on the cover as well, because of course blacks can they can swim just as well as anybody else. But quite often people from different ethnic groups haven't had the same opportunities to access the water growing up, they might still not have the same access to the water and they don't have the role models as well. So that, you know, that's a big difference. So if we can show all sorts of different people swimming and enjoying swimming, you know, even overcoming some of the the barriers that, you know, certain people face, you know, if you've got really big bulky hair, for example, that can be a, an issue with standard swimming caps. But there are solutions for that. You know, there are swimming hats you can use that will will cover your your full hair, even if you've got really, really big hair. And there are if for cultural reasons you don't want to reveal, or even for personal preference reasons, you don't want to uncover too much of your skin, there are there are solutions for that. You know, there are swimming costumes that, that you can wear. So we try it where we can. We don't get them very often. But you know, if we've got images of people wearing different types of swimming costume in the magazine, it kind of normalizes it as well. Because you might not want to be the only one that turns up at a at a swim wearing a, a full body costume if everybody else is in a in, a, in a, something really revealing and skimpy. But if you've seen pictures of other people doing it, then it sort of normalizes it, it lowers the barrier a little bit. So, you know, we we can't fix all the problems. But if we can just show some ideas and some people do it, modeling things in different ways, we can help at least.
0: Definitely. And we spoke about swimming memories from childhood and it makes you realize what a privilege that is to have positive memories of swimming as a childhood or to even be able to swim having grown up. And it's quite normal for a lot of people that swimming can be very daunting and very intimidating. And that's quite a normal fear really to be scared of water. So the more that we can show people that it's fun, that it's exciting, and that everyone is welcome, I think is just so important, isn't it? And you mentioned a few groups like the Black Swimming Association that are doing just fantastic work. And to be able to give them a platform as the Outdoor Swimmer Magazine must be amazing as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they're doing doing brilliantly without us. But it's nice that we can add something to them in, in the outdoor swimming space. I mean, they're doing a lot around kids and learning to swim and pool swimming as well. But it's nice that we can add something and uh, and share some of their stories.
0: And I think having founded such a popular magazine means that you're often asked to comment on swimming, especially when it comes to current affairs and being asked to share your platform and talk about things. So, you know, I've read articles that you've written or even an open letter to Jeremy Clarkson. What's that like having that responsibility and being a spokesperson for swimming?
1: Yeah, I I don't know how much of a spokesperson I am. Um, You know, we get invited to, you know, we, we talk to the governing bodies sometimes we were talking to Sport England recently. I think what we can do—we've obviously got between us, not just me, but among the team, at outdoor swim. We've got a lot of experience of of outdoor swimming in in all its different forms. You know, from from all the different bits of swimming we're talking about. Plus, we've got that connection with a lot of people who swim. So we we get a lot of feedback from swimmers about what they're looking for, what they like, and what they don't like. That does help us when we're talking to people like Sport. You know, we, sp- we speak to Sport England, we speak to Swim England. Speak to British Triathlon. We've got a lot of sort of information just that we've accumulated through talking that I think can be helpful to them to help show them what is important for outdoor swimmers. So, you know, for example, with with Swimmingland, they were very focused during lockdown on the damage to to pools and getting pools reopened and supporting pools to reopen because that was a you know very very difficult time for a lot of leisure operators. So that, but you know, previously the focus is, has probably been a lot more on pool swimming than on open water. But I think we've been able to, as part of our conversations with them, show them how important open water swimming is and what the opportunities are for them as the governing body for swimming are. You know, I don't know how much we've influenced them, but it's really great to see that they are now taking on campaigning issues, for example, campaigning for better access to open water, campaigning against water pollution which is obviously, the, you know, that seems to me that the rightful thing for the governing body of the sport to do. So I hope we've had some influence there and, and been some sort of channel between people who swim and the governing bodies that can talk to government and have that clout as a, as a sort of nationally recognised institution to talk to people in government, to talk to water companies, to talk to the Environment Agency and have that institutional clout that they can bring that that we can't do as swimmers
0: on our own. That's amazing. And you mentioned the amount of information that you have. And I know recently you published a trend report about swimming. Was there anything in there that really surprised you? There were some
1: things that just backed up things we suspected already. And there were some things that, that really surprised me. We already knew that or we were pretty certain that outdoor swimming was more popular among women than men. And our readership is more heavily orientated towards women than men. But a few years ago, it was sort of 55%, 45%. In that most recent survey, that had gone up to 65% women and 35% men. So that, that was confirming what we already knew, but the, the scale of that jump surprised us a bit. But, you know, I think that's, uh, you know, in other sports like triathlon is the only other sport I know a little bit about, I suppose, but the gender balance is very much tipped towards men in triathlon. So it is really nice to be working in a sport that is so welcoming and inclusive for women who sometimes feel like excluded or various or just not interested in, in some other sports. So that, that is a really positive thing. I think one, one of the things that most surprised me, we asked people who had recently started swimming whether they intended to swim through the winter. And it took me 15 years of regular outdoor swimming before I swam through the winter. I just wasn't expecting the number of people to say you know are you intended to continue swimming through the winter 75% of people replied to say yes they intended to continue swimming through the winter this is people that just started swimming and that's just you know it took me 15 years to do that and to have the the i don't know the, the confidence or the the courage or or maybe i just needed a pandemic to push me into it I don't know. <laughs> but that whole idea of winter swimming we knew it was becoming more popular But that, I think people were specifically taking it up, taking up swimming with the intention of
0: swimming through the winter outside. Yes,
1: very brave. Just the scale of it just really uh, surprised me.
0: And the scale of it is huge. It's a huge audience, which just from the days of starting out must be incredible for you. But what do you think is the secret to engaging them in a post-pandemic world, in a world that's increasingly digital? What are the plans next for outdoor swimmer?
1: You mentioned digital There is interesting that um, during the pandemic, the first few months of the pandemic, it was, a, it was a very difficult time for a lot of small businesses. And a lot of our advertisers had to cut back their advertising. So we actually went digital only for four months to save on our print and postage costs. And our subscriptions started going down, even though our website traffic and people searching for outdoor swimming jumped. So we knew there were a lot more people swimming, but our readership was going down. As soon as we came back to print, our subscriber numbers started growing again. So although the world is increasingly digital, that experience, you know, and we've talked about, you know, should we be a digital only p- publication because it, co- you know, it costs a lot to print a magazine, but that experience was a real graphic demonstration to us that our readers and we know our demographic is slightly older than, you know, it's uh, our average age is about 47, 48, but that demographic of people really enjoy a print magazine and the, the idea of something coming through the letterbox once a month and you know maybe sitting down with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and maybe after a swim you sit down with a cup of tea and read the latest issue of the magazine and that they like that tactile experience maybe even the smell i mean I love, I love the smell of a new magazine and having it all laid out in print is something that that there's still definitely a demand for and you know i really hope as a publisher that that continues i think it's a more engaging experience to read in print than on screen but that said you know we would love to reach a much more international audience. So we do have readers around the world. We've got readers in Australia and, and Canada and, and the US, but it's still quite small for us. So we do have a digital replica of the magazine that's uh, available at, in all of those places. The problem is we're posting to, it's not the printing and paper that's the problem for sending magazines to the US, it's the postage. It costs us more to post a magazine that it does to print it for overseas. So although we have got readers who are, they pay a premium because they still have the print product, that that audience is quite small and we'd love to expand, you know, to that much wider audience. So, I, you know, that's one of the things we'd love to do. And I think as a platform, obviously we want to keep on inspiring people to to swim and helping them on their swimming journey and showing them all the other options. We're an independent publisher. We haven't got the resources to, to manage big campaigns ourselves. But, you know, I think it's really important for us to support campaigns that make a difference for swimmers. Uh, so supporting campaigns for cleaner water, supporting campaigns for better access to water because you know a lot of is on private land and stuff. So I think supporting other people who are who are running those campaigns because of you know we've got that audience and on our network. So I think that's something we can do more of in the future. Yeah, I guess that, you know that's probably the the main things is you know keep inspiring people as more and more people come into swimming, showing them how to swim how to stay safe and how to make the most of the sport, international growth and and supporting all those campaigns.
0: Well, you've certainly got a busy year ahead of you, but it sounds like it's all very exciting, which is wonderful. And what's coming next for you as well? Do you have any trips or swims planned, or is it just about making the most of being able to be outdoors and continuing to get in that river in the Thames?
1: Well, I've been in the river already this morning, so that was that was nice. It's oh, wow. amazingly warm at the moment. It's 22.8 degrees this morning. Wow. Which is it's getting to the point where you almost think that's too warm. It's not natural. I've got a swim run. I don't really cycle very much anymore, but I still run. So I'm, I'm doing a swim run event in a couple of weeks' time. I'm really looking forward to that in Wales. I really like swim run. It's a really nice combination with with swimming, I think. I haven't booked that much in this summer because... I've just been, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. With it. So I expect I will do some more swims, but I don't know which ones yet. I'm waiting to see what happens. I mean, everything's supposed to be open again now, but I don't know <laughs> if I'm brave enough to book lots of events. So I will do some. I don't know which ones. Otherwise, I'll just be, you know, exploring locally. I'm, um, You know, we did a trip to the, the seaside at the weekend. So maybe some some local trips, find some new spots where I haven't swum before.
0: Yeah, and you've certainly inspired me for some new trips. I'm very excited about the idea of Germany, having heard about all these amazing lakes everywhere.
1: Yeah. And France is really nice as well. France is a bit different. You have all these signs that say swimming's forbidden and that's where everybody swims. It's a very strange thing, but really nice swimming spots in in France as well.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about your journey and lots of the swims that you've had in your life. It's been wonderful to hear them. And I'm really excited to see everything that Outdoor Swimmer continue to do and continue to inspire people. Thank you. Thank you to Simon for telling me more about his journey and also Outdoor Swimmer. You can find the magazine online or buy a subscription via the link in the show notes. Simon's also writing a book at the moment, A Beginner's Guide to Outdoor Swimming, which is due to be published summer next year, so something to look forward to. Thanks again to this episode's sponsor, TryHard. Say goodbye to Chlorine and shop their skin and hair products at 15% off with the code TIDAL. See you next week!